that we're going to be reading uh, the, the, my wife's going to be reading today's scripture. And um, I was encouraged by this. We were reading in Nehemiah today that when they read the book of the law, that they stood. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord, you may be seated. So we're in this series um, this this October, I should say, Um, and, uh, and... and for a very good reason, you know, the end of the uh, at the end of the month is, you know, many would say Halloween, but it's also something else. We've got um, Rocky. Last week we did Sola Scriptura. We have the five solas of the Reformation. The first one's by Scripture alone, and today is got Rocky the Reformer here. Grace alone and faith alone. What Becca read today really uh, epitomizes that. Now, this is at the end of the month, we call it Reformation Day as well, not just Halloween. That is because in 1517, off the top of my head, 1517, Martin Luther, a German monk named Martin Luther, went to Wittenberg Chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. Once again, I love pronouncing Wittenberg like a German, Wittenberg. Um, and, uh, and he did something that many others did. Um, this was kind of an early form of Twitter or Facebook, where you uh, you pound something onto the wall. On I guess we write something on people's walls today, and that would be now we need to discuss it. So we had 95 theses. Um, thesis is almost like a word we don't even use anymore. But if you are if you are interested in preaching, learn that word. I'm not going to get into that right now. Some people just like talk off the top of their head. Have an organization to what you are saying. Um, 95 theses, so 95 statements. Basically, an invitation to discuss these things. These are things that he felt in his very heart. Um, the church of his day had wandered from. I feel in my very heart the five solas of the Reformation. So, um, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, uh, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, are five things that the church in America, the church around the world, has strayed away from. Last week was Sola Scriptura by Scripture alone. The end of this month is also, we know, we know it is Halloween. The word Halloween comes from the Catholic holiday of All Saints Day, the day before All Hallows Eve. I don't know many people who celebrate Catholic or not All Saints Day or so much that they would need to celebrate the night before. It seems it's more of a celebration of superheroes, cartoons, and candy. But there's also a dark side to the celebration as well. The celebration of fear, of scary stories, inappropriate costumes, and horror movies. And they play around with fear. And you know what I think is interesting about this? I was, I was thinking about this last night and actually added it to my notes today. These are petty fears. Yeah. Ghosts, goblins, serial killers, all of this. Some of them are real, some of them are not real. But they're all very petty fears. They're all what they are. Is a fear It's a procrastinating fear. To focus on things that are less dire so you don't have to deal with the most dire thing. So it's a season, many people see it as a season of fear, I don't. But so many people do, and they'll watch horror movies and stuff. Ridiculous. Petty. Childlike. 
because they don't want to deal with the greater fear. One day I will die, I will pass from this veil of tears, and I will stand before a just God. Will he count me just? When I stand before the righteousness of God, will he count me righteous? Thomas Jefferson said the one thing that kept him up at night, what he feared for his country was that God is just, and his justice will not sleep forever. We, set, we, we deal with fear so much differently as believers. We should. Those who have been made perfect, perfect in love. For perfect love drives out the greatest of fears. Many people misquote that verse and they say, perfect love drives out all fear. It's perf- the per- perfect, uh, perfect love drives out fear. It's a specific fear. It's a fear of judgment. Yeah. Every person, no matter what they say, atheist, Muslim, Christian, whatever, have a deep primordial fear primordial fear of what happens after this life. How will I deal with this? Oswald Chambers, and I think I have a slide for this, said the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything. It's the Oswald Chambers quote. It should be on there. Um, You can put that up as as I continue talking here. Um... We should deal with these things. I'm not, I'm not afraid of real or imagined things because Christ said, um, and do not be afraid of them which kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. If I deal with the biggest fear of all, what fear do I have of other things? A Christian does not walk in fear. Amen. We walk in victory. We are, not, we are not impressed by all the ghosts and goblin stories because we know, we know that we are safe from the one who could truly do any harm to us because he has now accepted us into his family. Amen. And our fear for him now is a reverence instead of a deep, dire fear. But if you don't know the Lord, you should have a deep, dire fear of God. An incredible terror, for it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. But to those of us who are being saved... It is the greatest comfort to know that God is just and he is the justifier of all of of his faithful by faith. Are you justified before God? Are you just before God? Last week I told you how the end of the how at the end of the month is not just Halloween, but it's Reformation Day. It's Reformation Day because 1517 Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg Chapel. But Martin Luther, as a young man, he really dealt he really dealt with the assurance of salvation. How does he? How do you know that you are really saved? How do you know if you're really saved? So as a college student, even as a monk, he would fast five out of the seven days of the week. His friends would get awfully concerned about him. He would spend hours at the confessional. I'm sure the poor person on the other side, priest on the other side, is like, what could he have done today? <laughs> Because he wasn't sure about his salvation. He wasn't sure. Does God, can I really be just before God? A big part of this was in the way they translated um, righteousness into the Latin. The story of how Martin Luther understood that he was just before God is breathtaking. It has everything to do with the verse of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I get a little break right there. goes on. A righteousness that is by faith from the first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
Heaven is not the home of the pitied, it's the home of the just. So when you look at your own righteousness, do I measure up? Because Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jeff Boxworthy, you know, he does the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? That's how a show, Are You More Righteous Than a Pharisee? Spoiler alert, you're not. First question, how much scripture have you memorized? Every Pharisee, at least the first five books of the Bible, and most of the Talmud. And most of us are like, so I haven't really read Leviticus because it's really boring. <laughs> okay, what, what about the Ten Commandments? The Pharisees said, I, I have kept on the surface, according to what we know, the Ten Commandments perfectly. In fact, there was this rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. He said, I've kept them all since you. I'm not more righteous, you're not more righteous than them. Then what hope do we have? The fear of Martin Luther, that's understandable if we really think about it. What am I going to do when I stand before a holy God? And that is what this service, this is what this message is really about, about grace alone, by faith alone. How do I stand before God as just? R.C. Sproul really summarized Luther's coming to grips of this righteousness better than I will, so I'm just going to quote him. But Luther was looking now at the Greek word that was in the New Testament, not the Latin word. The problem for Luther, I'm going to go off here from the quote, but the problem for Luther was that um, the Bible he had was the Latin Vulgate. Latin Vulgate was translated from the Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And as you can imagine, I mean, you've been here, I go into the Greek and Hebrew because that's, that's the inspired word of God and not necessarily our, our English translations, not that they don't do a great job better than I ever could, and I could go on and on and on. But there are some words that have a, you have a trouble translating from one language to another. And one for the Latin that was really troublesome was the word righteousness, or justice. It was the word um, eustace, which, uh, which we get the word justice in the English language from. And what that meant was really kind of like, kind of a works righteousness, like, you become righteous, you become just. That's what Luther was having a problem with. I can't become righteous enough. He'd read God's word, which is a mirror to our very souls, and he realized, I am a sinner before God. So, let me go on with this. The word diakos, which didn't mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. So the biblical word for just and righteousness is to be declared righteous. To count as righteous, not to achieve righteousness. And this was the moment of awakening for Luther. He said, you mean here Paul is not talking about a righteousness by, God, by which God himself is righteous? God is righteous because he always does the right thing and never not, does not do the right thing. But this is a different kind of righteousness. But a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to his people who don't have righteousness of their own. This is good. Because you're not righteous on your own. You know, you know what the Bible says in Isaiah? That your righteousness to God is like filthy rags. Yes. I'm not going to go into exactly what he means by filthy rags. Some of you know and you have smiles on your face. I gotcha. But it turns the stomach our self-righteousness. Yes. He's ready to spit us out of his, our mouth because of our own righteousness. But a righteousness that he declares over us let me go on. And so Luther said, Whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? It is called a justus alienum, an alien 
righteousness. When I was a youth pastor, I did this series on Jesus is better than. Because most of the time in youth group, we'll talk about Jesus is better than drugs. Well, when you talk about drugs, you know, destroying your life and family, it's like a lot of things are better than drugs. I'm like, what about the best things in our culture? What about the most laudable things in our culture? Because I wanted to express to you in Hebrews, it's saying Jesus is better than the best. Jesus is the ultimate of everything. So I did this series on Jesus is better than Superman. And I called it an alien righteousness or an example to strive after. And I did that on purpose because if you know about Superman being an alien, you might be thinking I'm talking about Superman being alien righteousness and Jesus being the example we should strive after. Strive after. It's the exact opposite. Though many people see it the other way around like I talked about. Jesus wasn't just a perfect man that we then emulate in our life. In fact, you know what the law tells us? You can't. You can try your hardest, you're never going to be as righteous as Christ. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. Amen. That is what an alien righteousness is. I didn't work for it, I don't deserve it, but I declare it. Superman, on the, on the other hand, he is an example to strive after. You're probably hearing the voice of Marlon Brando in your head right now. You will run and they will try to follow. They will trip and fall, but someday they will meet you in the sun. Many people see Jesus as Superman. That's why it has no power for salvation. Um, but when we understand that Christ, he declares us as righteousness. That's why it's grace alone, by faith alone. This doctrine was a scandal as it came out. There was two men. Yesterday was the 466th anniversary of their death. Um, I think I have this on here. Thank you very much. You probably can't read that. I should have increased it, but that's okay. I'll just tell you what it says. So yesterday, on this day, um, of 1555, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Leitner were burned, burned at the stake for preaching justification by faith alone. Leitner said... Be, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day by we shall this day light a candle in England by God's grace that shall never be put out. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, I thought this. I, I learned this yesterday. Actually, one of the first kids in my youth group, um, her last name is Ridley, and she is the seventeenth great niece of Nicholas Ridley, of Bishop Ridley. They had heard the teachings of Martin Luther. And took them to their conclusion of faith alone, not faith in works. You know, something every religion other than our own, and in the perversion of our own, also deviates from this as well. It is faith plus works. I believe, I try really hard. You know, you do your best, God does the rest. You've heard that phrase before. Not so. It is by grace alone, by faith, through faith alone. Or as our scripture says today, you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. When they were going up to the stake, they were encouraging one another as a fire was being lit. Leitner had, Leitner had said to Ridley, Master Ridley, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle in England by God's grace that shall never be put out. He's talking about their very bodies being lit on fire. And they were some of the last Protestant um, martyrs in all of England. Grace alone and faith alone. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as Becca, my wife, had read today, we have both grace and faith alone in salvation. 
I tell you, grace and faith are not just useful for getting into the door, but they are a lifestyle by which the Christian must live, is grace and faith. To live any other way is to live contrary to our very nature that God has remade us, and it causes such, it causes such unearned pain, guilt, and suffering. So today, I really, um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 really says everything when it comes to how we are saved by grace through faith. So we're going to look at these very two popular verses in the context of the rest of the scripture, for the best way to understand scripture is by other scripture. The more clear a verse, the more clear the understanding. So first, grace, second, faith, and I want to talk about the importance of seeing these as alone, as opposed to adding on to them, which is what Paul is warning us against. It is not of ourselves. The first one I want to talk about today is grace. Grace. And I go to the, uh, the one that says grace, mercy and grace. We often um, misunderstand or we conflate mercy and grace together. And so I thought of a good way of explaining the difference between mercy and grace, and it's the movie Aladdin versus the movie Les Miserables. I'm not French, so I can't say that word well. Um, mercy is not getting what you deserve. We're all about what we deserve, right? As Americans, we're like, my rights, I expect my rights. You know what we deserve? We deserve hell, because that's what we work for all of our life, because outside of Christ, we can do nothing right. Outside of Christ, we, we are not righteous. We've broken God's law. Every single one of us. The guy who brings the paper to the President of the United States, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't get what we deserve with mercy. What we should deserve, so I was thinking about the movie Aladdin. You remember Jafar, he's dressed up as an old man. And I don't understand, I mean, I, I, know he, I thought he was like a magician, like, you know, Chris Angel is a magician, you know, tricks and stuff. But what does he do with his teeth? <laughs> anyway, so he tells Aladdin he wants to go to the Cave of Wonders, and he tells him, go get me the lamp, and then I'll give you your reward. Yes. And then he's like, you'll get what you deserve. And then Iago's like, what you deserve? And uh, <laughs> he gives him the lamp, he's like, time for you to get what you deserve. And if you're ever doing something, somebody's like, and you'll get what's coming to you. Run the other way, run the other way. <laughs> In mercy, we do not get what's coming to us. But God does much more than mercy. And grace is great. It starts with mercy, but it goes so much further. Grace is like in Les Miserables. Jean Valjean, you know, Wolverine, um, is, a, is a fugitive. He had stole a mouthful of bread, and he was in prison for 17 years. So he's on parole, one infraction, he's going back to the, the, the horrible state of prison that he was in before. He calls it slavery. Nobody wants to give him a chance. Nobody even wants to feed him. He's starving to death. And this priest and this church take him in. They feed him. And in the night, he repays their charity by stealing as much silver as he can and then takes off. And the French police find him. They beat him. They take him back to the church. And they ask the priest of the church, this guy had the nerve to say, you gave him this silver so at this moment, John Valjean knows, and we know this because he sings a song afterwards that tells us. Um, but anyway, he knows that one word, one word, justice would demand he goes back to slavery, back to prison. He'd repaid kindness with a cursing, and that's what he would have deserved. Mercy would have been for the priest to say, I have no charge against him, please let him go. 
course, without the silver, without anything, just go. That's mercy, and it's wonderful. Because justice would have been going back to prison. But the priest actually has grace on the man. He says, yes, I did give him all that silver, but you missed the best piece. And that's the, that's the two silver candles. And the rest of the movie, you see those two silver candelabras in every scene for a very big reason. Because it was grace, it was the mercy of God that led Jean Valjean to repentance. It's God's mercy that leads us to repentance. That he gives us what we don't deserve. He doesn't just give us what we do deserve, hell. He gives us what we don't deserve, life everlasting, joy that's unspeakable, should I go on, faith that is enduring, and an assurance of salvation. People have called God's love, God's grace. One of my favorite things is God's crazy love. I like that because what God does in partying and adopting sinners doesn't make sense. We like it for us, but think about this. God pardoning a skinhead. God pardoning one of those like um, Black Panthers who killed cops a few years ago. God pardoning a cannibalistic serial killer. God pardoning all kinds of people that we don't like, that we don't even want to talk about in church. It seems wrong that those people don't get what they deserve. We also don't get what we deserve. Well, what explanation is there for God's love? God does not love you because you're smarter than others. God does not love you because you act better than others. God does not love you because you come to this church, because you read your Bible, because you pray. What explanation is there for God's love other than He loves us because He loves us? Amen. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. Go ahead and put that on the screen. I have a lot of like screens for you today. <laughs> Christ did not die for man because of some value he perceived in us. He loved us not because we were lovable, but because he is love. This is one of the most freeing statements you'll ever come across. You don't have to earn God's love. We accept that at salvation. But do you accept that now? Or do you continue to think, I have to, now I've gotten in the door, now I have to earn God's love for me. No, God loves me because he loves me, because he is love. God did not love you because you'd be a future successful servant. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you even if you just come to him at the end of your life, by the skin of your teeth, entering as one ghost is saved through the flames, as Paul would talk about it. He still loves you. And you have not done anything to keep him from loving you. Do you believe that today? With all your faults, all your problems? He loves you because He loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's fantastic. I didn't earn it, so I can't earn it later on either. He loves me because He loves me. We live by grace. Grace is not only relevant for you when you are first saved. We have a skewed view of salvation. It doesn't really align with Scripture. We think it's like a thing that we did one time, and now it's, now it's done. But you have been saved. That is a point in time where God has called you just. And if you die, you will be with him in heaven. But he's also saving you as well. He's conforming you into the likeness of his son. And he will save you. For when you die and come before him or are raptured, he will remake you in a twinkling, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the dead. And Christ shall arise imperishable. We live by grace. John 1.16 for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. 
The Christian's life is marked by grace and more grace. And when we think that we have, not, we, we have exhausted God's grace, we receive more grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones saint who has, has since been to be with the Lord, said, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us at the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian faith starts with grace. It continues with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Once again, that is Martin Lloyd-Jones. When speaking of grace, people get awfully worried because, you know, I'm telling you that God forgives all sin. And it is not of yourself, it's nothing you can earn, but God freely gives. So people are like, well, people will hear this, and they will think I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me. This is so old that all the way back, even in the Bible times, in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Many people call this abusing grace, others call it hyper-grace. And this idea that they're, like, I can just live however I want. And God's going to forgive me. This is a person who does not know the power of God, who has not experienced grace, who has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The verse continues, How can we who die to sin still live in it? The person who's been transformed by grace, who has experienced grace, does not desire to sin. Their heart is broken over sin. When I was in the treatment facility, we really struggled with what we were teaching kids. Because oftentimes, we were supposed to be doing life therapy, which was the idea to get them to understand, I make a decision, how is this going to impact my life? And somebody brought up things like, that's too abstract. We just go back to behavior modification. Stop touching that. We go back to behavior modification all the time in church, don't we? Stop doing that. Trying to, by your own by your own uh, ability to stop these things instead of letting the Word of God dwell in you richly to, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to stop trying so hard and to surrender toward God. You ever watch Scooby-Doo when you were a kid? I like the old Scooby-Doo. The new Scooby-Doo is an abomination. CGI Scooby-Doo should not exist. So, Scooby-Doo, one thing I loved about Scooby-Doo is like, right... The person, the, the monster or whatever, it wasn't a monster, it was like the old man who ran the amusement park. So you unmask, it's like, let's see who this really is. And like Fred always thought it was like his high school bully. When it comes to hyper-grace, abusing grace, let me unmask it for you. It is not because people believe in grace so fervently that they fall into hyper-grace or abusing grace, meaning that they think, I can do what I want, God will forgive me. It's because they do not understand, they do not believe, and they have not experienced grace at all. Because the person who has received grace doesn't want to sin. They understand it's a part of life, and that God is so great that he forgives me even when I do sin, but they do not desire to sin. It is the work of grace. The work of God's grace is to make us more like Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 really says it all is not of ourselves. 
Becoming more like Christ isn't about trying harder, it's about surrendering more. Can you put that up on the screen? Becoming more like Christ isn't about trying harder, it's about surrendering more. So we come to a part of besetting sin. Instead of behavior modification, we slap our hands every time we do it or whatever we want to do. We go to God in prayer, in the deep part of prayer. Sorrow over our sin, but it doesn't stop at sorrow. Not wallowing away in sorrow over sin. It's, I need to surrender more. Because what is worship? We should all know this, right? Romans 12.1 I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your this is your spiritual and necessary act of worship. If worship does not result in a changed life, it's not worship. It's entertainment. It should change. It should result in a changed life because becoming more like Christ isn't about trying harder. It's about surrendering more. Peter tried so hard. You see that in the scripture. We have a term for that. You know, a try hard. He's constantly saying, "I'll never." I'll never leave you, Jesus. I, you know, he's always asserting himself. And then when it came time for the crucifixion, he denies him three times. But then when Christ comes to him and he reinstates him, Peter's a different man. And then at Pentecost, boom. He receives God's grace again. He is a changed man. That is the work of grace in our life. I have like a thing on here, time permitting, and it's not permitting, so I will, I will go on to faith. I, I have purposely put that on, on here, so it's like, it's like it's an illustration. I'll save it for something else. Um, faith. Faith. That's a word that we use in church a lot. Understanding that scripturally is not just simply, I like, I believe, I, I, I believe in this thing to exist, or I believe that this might be true. It's trusting in something with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, like you would trust a parachute as you are jumping out of a plane. It is trusting in Christ alone for our salvation from grace through faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. You are saved by grace through faith, and this faith is not blind. On the contrary, Hebrews 11.1 defines faith like this, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what is not seen. I have this up on here. In Star Wars, you remember Obi-Wan, he's like, Luke, don't think, just let go of your conscious mind, Luke. Let the force guide you. I'm tired of Star Wars Christianity that makes the spirit seem like a force. It's not a blind faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of what is not seen. We are built up in our most holy faith. It is something that is tangible, be yet unseen. It is not Obi-Wan. I like Obi-Wan Kenobi, but Obi-Wan is wrong. Paul the Apostle, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is, no, this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted him until that day. Faith is powerful. Faith is a man sitting in prison, knowing he probably won't get out, but he trusts his God. That was Paul the Apostle. It is not a blind faith. Faith is not a power in and of itself. Faith is only as good as the one who faith is in. It is not, a, it is not the force from Star Wars. 
but it is the Holy Spirit working in and through us. It's not a vessel for the power of God. Faith is only as good as who the faith is in. There is a damnable heresy, I'm just going to say it like that, that elevates faith and lowers God. That makes it seem like faith is a magic power inborn in every human, and that we choose to kind of use this power. I find, as somebody who likes comic books and fiction of all sorts, I find this so ridiculous, because this is what I read in that, and it's not real. You know what's real? Is that I have a real God. And by grace, through faith, I know Him. I know Him. When you stand before God, what would, what, what would you say? You know, it's that common question, right? Um, you stand before God, and He asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you to say? I'm really adapting this from another pastor named Alistair Begg, which I found just so, so, so incredibly stunning, because if you say anything in the first person, because I, you are off base. You are trusting in yourself, your works, or something to that effect. It should always be in the third person, because Christ Think of the thief on the cross, in which Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. I would love to know, I hope there was cameras rolling in heaven when he, when he came to heaven. And that day he's at the gates, and there's an angel, and um, the angel's like, what are you doing here? And the guy's like, I don't know. He's like, well, do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone? And the man's like, I don't understand what those words are. What about the Trinity? Do you understand the Trinity? No! What's a Trinity? Is that something you can eat? <laughs> and the angel's like, why are you here? And the man's like, I don't know. So let me get my supervisor. He gets a supervisor angel out here. And the supervisor angel, he goes over some questions. He's like, so then why are you here? And the man would say what? So the, he could only say one thing from his knowledge. The man on the middle cross told me I could. When you stand before God, the one thing, the one thing. This is the reason why you don't have to fear anything. Because you have conquered the primordial fear. You have been. The Lord has. So you stand before God, the man on the middle cross that I could come. I know in my own righteousness, I don't belong in the house of the just. In my own righteousness, I don't belong anywhere amongst good, reasonable people. But the man on the middle cross that I I had heard that I had asked on a, on a Wednesday that very question, you come before God. Um, and he asked you, um, why should I let you in my head? And I actually asked uh, Lindsay Moe, but they had a great answer, actually. It was about the finished work of Jesus Christ. I was like, awesome. Um, because I was like, because I was looking at that, I was like, what would happen if I asked people in my congregation that? So I was really, I was really happy. I was really, really um, happy to hear that. So grace alone, faith alone, grace, faith my third one is alone. Why is it important that these are alone? We don't add on to them. First of all, if we, add, if we were to add on to these, we'd be adding on to Scripture, right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. So we then have to add in there, you know, grace plus sacraments, faith plus works. I find that while many of us would agree with this, it becomes very hard to live by that the life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Once again, I find, well, it's easy to say amen, it's easy to agree with this, it's easy for me to put this on paper. It's often hard for me to live like this. I want to talk about the doctrine of imputation. I think I've got a, uh, a slide on this for two as well. Imputation means the transfer of benefit or harm from one party to another. In Martin Luther's day, um, it was thought that, and it was taught, I should say, that you receive grace, you receive grace from the church in the, in the, in the um, avenue of sacraments. When the Catholic Church in that day, in the Holy Roman Empire, started losing ground, they would even do something where they, for a providence or an entire, um, an entire country, they would have their priests go on strike. Because you couldn't receive grace except through the priests. So, I mean, it was, it was effectively, you know, telling them that they, they could go where they could go. Um, they didn't want to do, they didn't want to play ball. Imputation is different. Imputation is used to say, you know, which is an alien righteousness. That I have a transfer of benefit of harm, or harm from one party to another. And on the cross, you have double imputation. You have my sin put on Christ. We talk about that a lot. We'll talk about that quite a lot. That my sin was put on Christ. When Christ died on the cross, my sin died as well. Glory to God. The doctrine of faith alone by grace alone also emphasizes the other form of imputation. That Christ's perfect record is then transferred to me. In the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, they are enslaved by the Egyptians. The last curse would be the death of the firstborn. And it wasn't the firstborn Egyptian, it was the death of the firstborn. Any firstborn would die, but God gives a provision. He says, take a spotless lamb, a pure lamb, kill it, take the blood, put it on the threshold and the doorposts. And when the destroyer comes, he will pass over, that's why they call it Passover. The angel, God himself, does not look inside each house to see, you know something? Bill was rude to his wife. I'm just going to go in and kill his firstborn anyway. Wherever he found the blood, he passed over. The doctor of imputation says that when Christ, when God sees me, God the Father sees me, he sees his son. He sees the blood of his son. Wow. This is the doctrine of imputation. Not an infusion of grace that I have to constantly worry about or what is going to happen to me when I die. But God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to me. Often we don't live like this and worship team you can come up at this time. We don't live like this when we have a self-righteous attitude. If you believe your righteousness is from God, but you're standing on your own righteous attitude, you see people and you start, you're looking your nose down at them, but for the grace of God go I. Jesus gives a parable about a rich man and a tax collector. Not a rich man, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee comes into the temple of God, and he is proud, and he tells God, Thank you, God, I am not like other men. He gives his list, or like this tax collector over there. Who's on your list? Thank you, God, I am not a Republican, I am not a Democrat. Thank you, God, I am not like... I'm not like the churches down the street or up the street or across the street. Thank you, God. I am not like I'm not like those barbarians who chop people's heads off. Thank you, God. I am not like that person I saw on the news there. Thank you, God. I am not a Marxist. 
Thank you, God, I am not a capitalist. Thank you, God, I am not like all of these things, or even like this person over there. And the tax collector beats his chest, and he says, he can't even look towards heaven, he says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who is righteous before God. When we have a self-righteous attitude, how about this, when we compare ourselves to others, when we're like, I'm more spiritual because I operate in the gifts than more than somebody else, that's the same with our actions. I don't really believe in imputation. I don't believe my righteousness comes from God. I believe it comes from me. How about this? Christian karma. Christian karma. When something bad happens to you, do you say, God, why are you punishing me? Does God punish his children or does he discipline his children? He disciplines every child that is his. And it is ultimately for our good and his glory. Yet I still will have many people come to my office. I don't know why God is punishing me. How about this? Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a rejection of imputation. It's a rejection of grace alone by faith alone. When we hold unforgiveness towards somebody else, we look at the cross and we say, not enough. Christ, I know you suffered. I know you looked to heaven and you said, Eli, Eli, Lama, Shabbat, I, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I hear the words and I say, it's not enough. Do you know what they've done to me? When you don't forgive yourself, it's the exact same way. The blood of Christ wasn't enough. Grace alone by faith alone isn't enough. I've got, I, I have to work towards my own salvation. I have to work towards my own sanctification. We should have sorrow over sin, but if we continue in that sorrow and not actually go into the joy of the Lord, that's also a rejection of imputation. When we decide to fear what the world fears, it's a rejection of imputation. For what do I have to fear? The one who would kill me and throw my soul into hell is my father, and I trust him. So what do I have to fear of those who can kill the body? I, uh, I, tell, I put this at the end because I was, um, I was going through something very hard in my early adult life. I felt like I was being mistreated. I felt like people were conspiring against me and didn't have the courage to say something to me. And it resulted in harm to me and my wife. And it hurt our very soul. And as I was going through this process, I went to a uh, conference and a pastor came up, and, and his, his whole sermon was on the doctrine of imputation. And I'm like, amen, amen, we get to the end, we get to the part where I just read to you. Didn't really have much to say, because you know how I was feeling? I was feeling very self-righteous. Thank you, God, I'm not like the people who are doing what they're doing to me. As though I had no debt before the Lord that he forgave. As though I was not adopted as his son when I did not deserve to be. And I remember going through this, and it was, it, was, it, was this, it was an interesting conference, because it was a conference, it was um, people from every different denomination was there. I say that to say it wasn't Pentecostal, so there wasn't an altar call. Um, so there was no altar call, but he talked about imputation, we're all amen and amen, and he gets to the threats to the imputation, he goes to the last one, it is not, the, it is not those who reject it, but those who embrace it, but do not live like it, is the greatest threat to the doctrine of imputation that God saves by grace alone, faith alone, and we're all like, that's me. That's me. I, I've been here. And I remember, like, he got to the end of this sermon, we prayed, and I'm looking around, and everybody's just dead silent. It's like, if this is a Pentecostal church, everybody's up at the altar right now. You could just tell. 
you know, like you're just looking around and everybody's like, it got really quiet. He's like, I know, I know right now you're saying to yourself, I'm just a hypocrite. And he's like, you're right, you're all hypocrites. But you know what's great is God's bigger than our hypocrisy. Amen. That is so much bigger than our, our hypocrisy. No, I liked him here. He said, he, one of the things he said, I'm going to repeat as well. When it comes to sexual sin, we will beat ourselves over the head so hard and we will say to ourselves, I'm better than this. If you're better than this, Christ didn't need to die. If you could just try really hard and be righteous, Christ didn't need to die. Do you think God spills the blood of his son for no reason? If there was any other way for salvation? There's no other way, and there's no other way of living in righteousness than by the grace and faith that God gives to us. Amen. The worship team's going to lead us in our final song. I was writing this sermon, and that last part I didn't even have in there, but I was remembering what God did in my life and how powerful that was. I went through that season, and I remember friends and stuff like that talking about, um, you're taking this really well. If this happened to me, I'd be furious. And I said, I don't stand before God guiltless, except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and neither do they. Maybe I'm wrong, and I actually am in the wrong. I don't know. I don't think I am, but it's possible. So how can I not forgive when I've been forgiven so much? How can I not love when I've been loved so much? How can I refuse the grace of God towards other people when I myself have received the grace of God through faith? Today as we sing this last song, my prayer is that this awakens certain things inside of you. Maybe areas... Maybe areas you are not relying on grace, you are not relying on faith, you are trying to add your own works in there and just trying to be trying to be better on your own. Maybe I've attacked, well not I, the Holy Spirit, a self-righteous attitude that God wants. Because there's nothing in all of human existence that God does not look at and say, mine. And God wants that today. I'd invite you during this last song to give that to me. Today, if you are not confident in knowing where you are going when you die, today, by grace alone, through faith alone, repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. For he's birthing that in you right now. Do not ignore that. Do not ignore that. Because if the Holy Spirit's work inside of you, you lack one thing, repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And for all... For the rest of us who know the Lord, we are confident. I pray that we constantly look at ourselves. Where am I trying to stand on my own works? You know what works are for the Christian? They are fruit. They come from what God has done in our soul, not from me just trying to be better. They are the evidence of faith. A person who says they have faith, but they have no works, they have no faith either. They have a statement of belief, but they do not have faith. Faith expresses itself through works. God bless you today during this last song. This is our time for response, congregation. This is our time to repent. This is our time to rejoice in the great love, the grace of God that works itself through the faith, through our faith in our lives. So by grace, through faith, rejoice today. Richard team, would you please lead us in our final song?